Hello and welcome to Happy Place. I'm Fern Cotton and this is the podcast that celebrates the process of learning and allowing ourselves to evolve. Today I'm meeting, oh my goodness, I'm so excited, a feminist icon. It's Catelyn Moran. This is also the first time that women across the world, of all ages, wherever they are, have been able to communicate with each other. So when I have to tell my children the bad news about being a woman, the good news is also, but you're part of this amazing tribe of 4.5 billion women. And we've invented this thing called feminism, which is this amazing informal network where women are identifying these problems, talking to each other and coming up with solutions. And although it's a difficult time to be a young woman, you know, I have no doubt that things will get better. I know that our daughters' lives will be better than ours were. Catelyn is a journalist or author and broadcaster and when it was released in 2011 her book how to be a woman was for many of us a first introduction to 21st century feminism now she's written more than a woman because it turns out all these conversations continue to change as society shifts and as we move through different stages of our lives feminism isn't just something you can do once tick the box done thank you very much and can i just say that more than a woman is The funniest book I've ever read. I laughed, I howled out loud, as well as it being super poignant and very, very beautiful. Now, I will warn you, there is plenty of fruity tutti language, wild fruity language in this chat. So if you're not wearing headphones, you might want to dig them out, especially if there are young people about. Warning, warning. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Now, what I will say is before I recorded this conversation, I was feeling really rubbish, like a bit just grim and everything was going a bit wrong that day. And I felt like the heaviness of all this craziness that's going on in the world on my shoulders. I had friends going through stuff and I was just feeling awful. And I sort of didn't have much energy anyway, ever the professional, got my microphone out, ready to chat to Catelyn. And this chat just just like was a gear change for me. It snapped me out of feeling rubbish. It brought a massive smile to my face. And honestly, I, I felt fine afterwards. I felt I just got on with my day. This is the power of Catelyn. So if you're feeling a bit rubbish too, I promise you that this chat will cheer you up. Right, here's the show. Catelyn, how you doing? My darling, trifle hungover, a couple of pina coladas in a tin last night, so feeling a bit dry inside, but brave, stoic and positive. Good, well, that you've ticked every box, that is that is good news. And you are on a book tour or you've just finished a book tour? 
In the middle of a book tour, yes. So middle started of. in Bradford last week, finishes in Edinburgh next week. And how's that going? This is all for your paperback edition of More Than a Woman, which, oh, I needed. I needed to laugh out loud several times during the read of this so badly. So thank you for writing this brilliant <laughs> book. Thank you. Well, busy middle-aged women are kind of underserved by books that go, I see you, and here's some jokes about the shit you're going through. And that was very much the motivation for writing it. And the live tours are bearing this out. Like, I mean, as we know, there is no one who can party harder or more efficiently than a mum who's paying for babysitting. So they come out, (laughs) they drink hard. We always have to uh, delay the start of the events for about 15 minutes because always a surprised man from behind the bar will come and go... Your fans, they drink a lot and they're ordering pints of white wine. <laughs> yes. <laughs> get yes. like sailors on shore leave. You've got 24 hours to just hit New York, get in and get out. And they just do that. Oh, I love it. Honestly, this book filled me with joy. And, you know, not only is it, and I, I read a lot of books and I don't often laugh out loud. It's a real skill to be able to get someone to belly, like a belly laughing out loud. But not only that, it's so beautiful and poignant and thought-provoking in so many ways and it's it's really interesting well obviously I'm I'm a huge fan of you and and looking at your work over the years but especially the margin of time between this book and how to be a woman and, and what's changed in the world what's changed with you personally what's changed with your own sort of perception of life and and how you see it now that was super interesting Right, because like, I mean, as we say, the world has changed an enormous amount in the last 10 years. When I wrote How to Be a Woman, a big part of the motivation was that just we had stopped talking about feminism. Like kind of it was yeah. it was being used as an insult. Uh, so the majority of women would not claim themselves as feminists. And as we're starting to realise now with the Britney Spears documentary, sort of the early noughties, I think, were one of the worst times for uh, for womankind, sort of like since the end of the Second World War. It was a killing field out there, particularly for prominent women. We think of the Charlotte Church, Countdown Clock, Amy Winehouse, Lindsay Lohan, uh, Britney Spears. Like, you know, in the media, and even in women's magazines that are supposed to be on women's side, the tone that was taken towards women was basically, they were just like silly bitches that needed to sort their minges out and buy a handbag. And yeah. And, you know, always sort your minge out and buy a handbag if you wish. But <laughs> but there was so much more to being a woman than that. And I just wanted to sort of, you know, have, being a feminist, just explain to women who really needed it at that time that feminism isn't, as some people think, just angry women with lots of rules. It's a set of tools that allow you, whenever you're having a problem in your life, you feel scared or you feel not listened to as a woman, that feminism has probably been there before you and talked about this and is offering you some solutions. So in the mm-hmm. 10 years since then, like, feminism has just been extraordinary. We see it everywhere. We talk about women's lives so much more than we did 10 years ago uh, because of the rise of social media but we still tend to talk about younger women's lives and that how to be a woman was about what I realized was now a luxurious time when the only problems in my life were my problems to do with me me sorting myself out me making mistakes and we see so many tv shows now that talk about that broad city girls I may destroy you fleabag and there's nothing about the next stage in your life when the problems in your life aren't you but other people you have children, you have aging parents, you have friends who are divorcing. And the role often of a middle-aged woman is to be the one in the middle of this all, sort of holding together the threads of society with their bare trembling hands for no money or pay or claim whatsoever. So I was like, that's the next book that needs to be written. We've done hot messes. Now let's talk about the middle-aged women who have to get things done. And that seemed like almost a surprise to you because when you finished um, How to Be a Woman, you explain in the new book that you kind of thought, all right, I'm 35, the hard days are over. Now it's just plain sailing, chilling, kicking back. And, And in this book, you seem to be like, oh, fuck, I was really wrong there. 
Oh, totally. Well, I start the book because I was like, if you possibly can in a book, rip off basically the plot to Back to the Future. Do. <laughs> so the book starts with me at the age of 34 on the day that I finished writing How to Be a Woman going, ha, I know everything about being a woman. It's all going to be easy now. And I really did think that middle age had to be the bit where it got easy and that you were basically sort of waft around in beautiful linen trousers, having long lunches with girlfriends and sort of maybe in the south of France. And of course, <laughs> you're laughing. Any, any middle aged woman who's listening to this is laughing because that's not what middle age is about Ooh. at all. So I get me now at the age of 46 to go and visit me at the age of 36 in the first chapter of this book just to laugh at her basically just to go <laughs> <laughs> it's brilliant you think you know everything you know nothing but it's we have to, so we have to keep thinking the next bit's easier otherwise we would hide under a rock and never ever emerge again into the real world oh totally and like you know and there are so many joys of being a middle-aged woman this isn't by any means a memory no, no. memoir like kind of like you know you do you know as you lose skin elasticity you lose the amount of fucks that you give <laughs> you know what you like and like you can sort of curate your life a bit like a all bangers playlist like the things that you tried in your sort of your early years you know for me personally anal sex like I just, you know, <laughs> it was the 90s we had to try it that was what you did if you were kind of an adventurous young lady and now I'm just like no that's a poo area yeah and yeah I just, yeah and if a man out. is tired of vanilla and missionary position sex then he's tired of fanny like that's just yeah just exactly <laughs> he can bog off <laughs> Where do we go from here? You know what? I need to just rewind one minute because I want to talk about that era that you just spoke about where we weren't really talking about this stuff back in the early noughties and and there was misogyny everywhere. and, and And I look back and my toes curl because not only did I not have a proper understanding of what it was to be a feminist, I sort of willingly went along with a lot of the stuff that was happening. So I I was definitely one of those people that was battered in the press for being a sort of blonde, thick, whatever, you know, bimbo on the TV. And I was really berated relentlessly at points. And I kind of just thought, I can't say anything about this. I have to just keep my mouth shut and, and carry on. And there were lots of other things that I don't know if I even want to go into, but definitely plot lines that I went along with because I thought this is this is just how it is. And, and I used to relentlessly get asked in interviews in my early 20s. There was a real phase where it was a trend to go, are oh, you a feminist? And I felt like I was sort of being tricked because... It was a trap, yeah. Yeah, totally. because I thought I, I, I believe in equality. I know that I've been brought up by a tenacious mother who, you know, has always stood up for everything she believes, still does to this day, like vehemently. But I thought, I don't know if I qualify as one. And obviously today I'm like loud and proud. I understand it fully. I I love dissecting this subject and talking about it. But back then I thought, what are you, what are you looking for me to say? What, like, what could I get wrong here? It was such a strange time. Oh, totally. And, you know, I can remember seeing you in the press and it was a brutal time. It was much more controlled by men than it is now. Yeah. Sort of like, there was that real thing of like, there'd be one girl allowed in the room and kind of like, you know, you would be the girl. And we think, oh, well, at least there's one girl in the room that must help. But it doesn't because you need to have a group of girls in order to see female culture and for women to be able to communicate with each other normally. Like kind of in um, How to Be a Woman, I talk about this. Like if there's just one woman in the room, it's like putting a single flamingo in the penguin enclosure in a zoo. Mm. Like that flamingo is going to start acting really oddly after a while because it's not with others of its kind and the penguins are going to think it's weird. And the penguin will start plucking its feathers out and kind of like, you know, having a really weird time in that enclosure. And that's, you know, the noughties and the 90s were really, really big for that. And sometimes I do blame the Spice Girls for this because in the early 90s, we'd had Riot Girl, big sort of feminist explosion of sort of fanzines and punk rock and sort of strong women and stuff. And then when the Spice Girls came along, we stopped talking about feminism. We started saying girl power instead. And although it was great to hear nine-year-old girls saying that, girl power just basically meant buying Spice Girls records and 
being friends with your friends. Whereas feminism is this whole thing that's gone on for a century that will apply itself to every aspect of your life. So that was why I wanted to write a book that was really accessible because at that point in the early noughties, as you say, it was a trap to ask women if they were feminists. And if you said you Mm. were, then people just thought that you were a grumpy, man-hating woman in dungarees. And let's not forget, grumpy, man-hating women in dungarees have got a lot of stuff done. Like, I love them. They went on those marches, they got that stuff done. But there are are a billion different kinds of feminism. Everybody's is slightly different. Like, everyone is welcome in the big feminist zoo. Come along. Yes, of course. All flamingos welcome. And, you know, of course, some some still don't fully understand it and will still feel confused by it, which is fine. And, you know, that's why we want to keep discussing these subjects. But do you think part of the problem is because the word patriarchy gets flouted about so flippantly and that's misunderstood as well? Totally. I mean, there's a bit in, I can't remember if it's in this book, where I explain that when you talk about patriarchy to men, they often think they mean them. Yes. Like, kind of, and it's like, no, I'm talking about the patriarchy, not you, Patrick. You're just a man. You're not the man. Like, <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a difference. And patriarchy is screwing over men as much as it is women like there's i went on twitter about a year ago and said look i'm always talking about women's problems because i'm a feminist but men like what are your problems i got thousands of replies it went on for months it got picked up as news stories around the world and it was really interesting being able to see a pattern in the replies that that men were getting and at first you couldn't see it because it was some of them were silly so you know seemingly silly like uh no one ever buys me flowers because I'm a man like kind of and you're like Pfft. well you know I have to run down the street with my keys between my fingers so you know <laughs> that's yeah, like yeah, exactly like, yeah Sorry. I, you know yeah and you know I can cope without getting flowers but then you're like well no hang on let's think about that for a minute why flowers grow in nature like they're there for everyone why is suddenly one half of the population not supposed to have them not to have something that is joyful and beautiful and that will make you feel happy and as I was retweeting all these replies and one guy went uh, I read you uh, saying about men don't get flowers and I went and gave my 79 year old dad a bunch of sunflowers because I know they're his favourite and he burst into tears and went no one's ever given me flowers before mm. so that seemed like a small thing but you're like okay we're onto something here men aren't supposed to have joyful things or sort of do nice things for each other or sort of have emotions and then sort of more serious things like men going now if I see a child who's lost or scared in the playground I don't feel I can go over and help that child because people will think I'm a paedophile or creepy like I have to go and find a woman And again, I suddenly thought, well, wow, maybe there is such a thing as female privilege here because, you know, there are many downsides to being a woman. But I've always known I can help people and I've always known I never scare anyone. And for a young man, particularly boys of colour as well, to go from being like a little cute boy and suddenly you shoot up a bit and your voice breaks and suddenly you're seen as a threat or a weapon. And, you know, you scare people just by walking into a room. And at least that's something as a woman that I've never had to experience. So. But all of these, you know, this is the patriarchy. The idea of there are man things and there are woman things. And I talk to a lot of young men in schools and there's been a growing trend recently of young men who say they hate feminism, they see it as a cancer. I think they see that women seem to be winning at the moment. They do seem to be gaining. And if you think about it from a young man's point of view, like kind of in the last 10 years, the charts are full of songs about how great it is to be a woman. We're talking about sort of women starting to take over Hollywood. Sort of all the big hot shows of the last couple of years have been female-led. And, you know, schools have feminism clubs. And in the last 100 years, women's lives have changed exponentially. Like in the last 100 years, we can now own property. We can vote. We can go into space. We can wear trousers. We can talk about sex. We can own property. We can run businesses. We've taken all these things that were previously just male things, and we've got them now. So we've gained something in the last 100 years. Palpably, our lives have got better. It's exciting. In the last 100 years, men's lives... Have they changed at all? Have they have they taken anything that is a female thing and had it to expand their lives and feel like their lives are changing and it's you can be it's different to be a, a modern young man. 
they haven't really like kind of sort of it stopped and I think a lot of that is because the things that are seen as female like talking about your emotions parenting flowers you know wearing pretty clothes all these things that men were saying were a problem um because they're female they're seen as lesser and so whereas you know when a woman's going yes I'm going to smoke cigarettes and run a business you're like that's a man thing that's powerful I can see why you'd want that whereas if a man goes I really would like to wear a pink shirt and have flowers and cry with my children over a Pixar movie it'd be a bit like oh that's a bit girly that's a bit wet like that's not Mm, powerful why would you want that so that's what we're talking about when we talk about the patriarchy it's how it's the patriarchy is bumming men as hard as it is bumming women yeah without a doubt and you know it's interesting there you you sort of talking about the, the progression of how women move in the world today and obviously that's extremely exciting but yeah, there is still a, quite a large hangover that we're still dealing with. Because if I think back, I don't know about your own personal lineage, but it's only as far back as my nans who were sort of encouraged after birth to not work. So, you know, we are one of the first generations to have not only jobs, but careers, things we're deeply passionate about and things that we're running with full time and long term. And that's brilliant. But there's a sort of an emotional hangover and a, and a practical one. And the emotional one, again, it doesn't sound like a very sort of feminist thing to say but my own emotional hangover is the guilt of that is the balance of that and I mean we're that's fresh that is new guilt two generations away yeah oh, I no, mean it's so fresh and also it, I mean part of that's part of the push and pull of parenting like you know yeah. I've got a theory that we're chemically addicted to our children because you know when they're little you can't wait for them to go to school so you can finally get work <laughs> it's like they're on you they're in you they're around you just like go to school go 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 and then I don't know about you, but 20 minutes after they've gone, I'm going into their empty bedrooms and just like sniffing their pillows sniffing and going, things. I miss those guys. <laughs> What's wrong with us? I know. I think we're chemically addicted to them. And there are yeah. studies that when men are around babies, after half an hour, their testosterone levels drop by a half. So we are being chemically manipulated by our children to some degree. So some of it is stuff that we just, is happening on a really base animal level. And the guilt is one of them. Women know that they're supposed to be with their children all the time and love ceaselessly. Like the very last thing you should do is just still be loving your children. Like kind of that's, mm. you know, until you die, the second you die, you've got to be there and on your kids. And of course, that doesn't work. 79% of the families have two working parents. And this system doesn't work and you realize that it's because we still haven't adjusted to the fact that most women work now and have children so when I I don't know about you but like when I went and had a talk with my accountant uh I'm self-employed about what I could claim and I sort of said hopefully childcare because there's nothing more important as an expense I can't but what I could claim is membership to a golf club because I could then host potential clients so clearly no women have ever been in the room when we were talking about taxes no but this is this is a practical solution that like it's so obvious when I read that in the book I was like it's so obvious yeah I've embarrassingly never ever thought about that I, I I kind of still think it's a bit of a treat that I get to go to work and have a career like oh lucky me my grandparents didn't get to and it's like oh, that's so messed up oh no totally and I don't know about you but like kind of every year you get to the end of a year and go how did we manage that with kids because like you know in a job you get four weeks of paid holiday if you're lucky so if the pair of you together if you there's two of you parenting that's eight weeks you've got the school holidays are eight weeks long. Easter's two weeks. You've got three half terms. You've got two weeks for Christmas. The maths just don't add up. Nope. And like, and at the end of every year, you've managed it, but you have no idea how. I still couldn't tell you now how and who was looking no. after our children for the 10 years when they were young. We somehow got through it. Like, sometimes I'd be sitting on Brighton Beach with my children in those Zorb balls, you know, like those hamster <laughs> balls. And they'd be rolling up and down. You pay a fiver for it. They can do it for 20 minutes. And I'd just be sitting in the rain on the laptop, quickly writing something. Another fiver. Another fiver. Keep them in the balls. (laughs) Oh, no, one's gone in the sea. Okay, that gives me another 10 minutes. (laughs) 
know, especially this last year with homeschooling. I mean, there was some unbelievable moments of like oh here's my son talking to George Ezra whilst I'm doing the podcast come in come join it's all good how were you as a uh, as a teacher what was your teaching style how did you oh I wasn't I just wasn't (laughs) I was so shit I was so shit I just I'm not the first two weeks I was filled with a real optimism and and I just thought this is it this is the way to live we're gonna learn about car follies and forts one day and then the next we're we're gonna do um you know the the industrial revolution and I, I had this whole sort of plan that felt joyous we were, we were picking subject matters out of a box to make it fun I thought I'm nailing it literally week three I was like I'm gonna die I yeah. I, I it's just, just, <laughs> no, it's just it's not possible it's and I started to be I got really shit at my job because I was just my head was my brain was bulging out of my skull. Well, they've changed maths. It was, when did they change maths? Like kind I of. I am so bad at maths. What the fuck is that? Like kind of the way you add up now. Like adding up is no. the simplest thing. You're supposed to put them in a column, and then that's the thing. They've changed the way they lay out maths, the order of it. They've changed all the bits of it. Like why no. is that on the news? They should have told us that on the I don't news. Know. What? I don't know. I mean, I was shit at school, so I can't be expected to be a teacher now. I was useless. It's like I don't know. That whole thing was just a massive shit show, but. But hey, it was, it was so bad. It reminds me, Ugh. my worst ever parenting moment was before the uh, the pandemic a couple of years ago. It was the first day of the school holidays. It's half past ten. I'm in the kitchen. I'm working as fast as I can. Don't know where the kids are, but they're quiet. So that's okay. There's a ring <laughs> oh, on the doorbell. Oh, is it okay though? Quiet I, right. means trouble. Well, as we know, silence is deadly. <laughs> yes. um, so ring on the doorbell. There's a community police officer on the door, and he goes, "Hello, sorry to trouble you, but did you know that your children are um, hanging their bare bottoms out of your upstairs bedroom window?" <laughs> And shouting free at last, free at last. And I was like, no, I did not know that information. Thank you for the tip off. I'll go and sort that out now. Half ten on the first day. It got worse from that. <laughs> that is just so brilliant. I mean, that is the only snapshot you need to remember from 2020. Yeah. Yeah, that is it, it surmised. That- yeah. That's parenting in a nutshell. <laughs> just is- a policeman knocking on the door that- going, did you know? No, I didn't. Sorry. I failed. There we go. <laughs> oh, it's so hard. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Um, there are so many bits of advice I underlined in the book. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to keep going, well, to both books, but I'm going to keep going back to this book like it's a sacred scripture because there's just, there's so many things. And I mean, one of my favourite ones, I don't think we've ever dropped the C-bomb on here, but Don't Marry a Cunt is one of my favourites. So true, right? Preach, absolutely. Preach, preach. absolutely yeah. preach. And then another one which moved me to my core is, uh, I'm reading it out verbatim because it's, needs to be never 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 allow yourself to start seeing your body as a collection of separate problematic items now i'm imagining every single woman listening to this right now is gonna go it's that like it's a sigh out of oh i do this all day every day 
But we're in coaching. every day. I know. Yeah. What the hell are we going to do about this? Because you've nailed it. Like, you know, I'm very well aware that there's many flaws in society when it comes to looking at the female body. And I've fallen into every hole with that one. And, you know, reading your book made me realise how much shit I put my parents through on this subject, like loads of stuff. But the way that you've structured that sentence is like, oh my God, we've just pulled our bodies apart and we see it all as these little separate bits. It's all Well, totally. I do the list of all the things, things like, you know, cottage cheese thighs, knee overhang, bingo wings, muffin top, like kind of like, none of those things exist. Fat back. None of those things exist. They're just like consequences of wearing clothes that aren't the right size for you or something that someone's completely made up. Like kind of, it is your body. It's the only one you're ever going to have. You live in it until you die. It is your eternal friend. And you wouldn't talk to your best friend in the way that you talk to yourself about your body. And you have to. And But the thing is, it's seen as... We don't realise how deep this is. It's seen as impolite for a woman to be happy about her body, I think. I know. Like, I have to read the celebrity gossip magazines every week for the column I write in the Times about celebrity on Friday, which is a nice column about celebrity. I boggle at things. I'm on people's side. But without exception, whenever they interview a female celebrity, they will say at some point, so what's the bit of your body you hate the most? They never ask men this. I've never seen Bradley nope. Walsh being asked this, but kind of every <laughs> no. woman asked this. And every single woman in the world <clears throat> who we think of, we know, is beautiful, yeah. will have to, when someone says you're beautiful or mentions it when they're interviewing them, go, oh, no, you know, I look so rough or I've got really weird elbows or my toes are so freaky or kind of like my husband can't even look at my legs. And like, yeah. you, it's seen as polite. You have to put yourself down. You couldn't, for years I've wanted to, and I still don't have the balls to do it. I've wanted to write a column in the Times just going with a picture of me looking as I am. I'm a sort of size 14, 46-year-old woman covered in stretch marks and just go, I genuinely believe i am beautiful and hot like kind of you like, have to I, write this article though like you 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 have to do that i'm i know i will get so much shit on the internet from people who don't understand it but like i, well, I want to write it for women who have never read or seen a woman ever go i think i'm really beautiful i'm really happy with the way i am i've never seen anyone say that just no i haven't and look going, being the first is hard isn't it being the first person like as you say you you probably would get people that just miss the point entirely and and project their own chicks it's nothing to do with you onto you but i just think it would be the most beautiful thing because i'm the same you know i've got a daughter and a stepdaughter you've got daughters we we need that to become completely normalised, utterly, totally. utterly normalised. And we're so painfully far from that place. It makes me feel so sad. And it not being seen as vanity or like shitting on other women. Nope. It's just like, no, it's just that we need to be able to say in 2021 that we think we're beautiful and pretty and hot. Like we need to be able to say that and to feel it in our bones. And the other trope that I notice so much is men describing women like women are constantly being described to themselves by men. Like yeah. sort of in interviews, men just talking about how you look. Just like stop describing me. Yeah. Stop describing. Stop telling me what I look like. And also, I would. What if I were in government? The first rule I would bring in is that I'd like it to be a year, but realistically, we could probably only manage a week. I'd like us to have a week where we have no opinions about women at all. We yeah. don't have a hot take about Meghan. We don't have a hot take about Billie Eilish. Yeah. We're just for a week. We're just not going to have opinions about women. We're just going to let them live their lives and they can have their opinions about themselves. That would be mind-blowing. Opinions have gone mad. Opinions have gone mad. We've got got to a really strange place and it feels like we're really close to some sort of implosion because how can it get any worse? Everybody is so opinionated about things that have zero bearing on their lives but are so ferociously opinionated about things. And it's just like we've got to a place of sort of insanity with it where it makes no sense at all to have all of these crazed opinions in in a really acerbic tone 
that have no bearing on your life? Like, I, I, where do we go with that? Well, it's because there's a marketplace for it. So like the stats are on social media and sort of Twitter is the sort of main driver of this kind of unpleasantness is that they get you get three times more engagement if someone's saying something angry or has got kind of a hot take or an edgy take than you have by someone going, here's a really lovely video. Here's a smashing thing. Here's a song I love. So the, the, that, that's what succeeds. We've kind of we've yeah. changed the algorithms and we've got a marketplace where that's more successful. So, every, you know, we've become part-time unpaid opinion farmers. And like, that's the game. It's the gamification of opinion. Like you go there and you get your little dopamine hits if someone likes it or retweets it. And we're sort of looped into this sort of chemical uh, sort of system on, on social media where we're rewarded physically and chemically every time we're a bit cunty. And I just think in the future, in the same way that our Fitbits sort of register our footsteps or kind of, you know, our menstrual cycles, that it will start to tell us in the future, our readout from our dopamine and adrenaline hits from being on social media, from reading good and bad things. Um, And it will, a little thing will flash up and go, you need to get off social media now. You've had enough. You've triggered your dopamine reactors 30 times today. That's not healthy. Get off, go for a walk, go and hug your dog. Yeah, I, I, I had the alarm bells ring this week on that one. Just I'm finding the world very, very noisy at the moment. And I'm... I'm not really built for that sort of thing. I am. Um, I'm. I feel like I'm being like bruised the whole time, and I, and I've just had to sort of shut down from a lot of it this week. And maybe next week I'll feel absolutely capable and like oh I can dip in and out of it. But at the moment I'm just finding it so loud. And I've been going into real sort of like low dips of feeling so shit about everything. Like not any one specific thing, but just it's just so much. And and I just I, I like fairness. I like kindness. And I just don't know what to do with that information. Well, there's one really interesting statistic. So on social media, your social inhibitions are lowered to the point where you're basically in the same level of inhibition as if you've drunk one to two pints. Mm. So once you understand that the entire internet is just a bit drunk and looking for a fight and a bit horny, like kind of you're like, oh, okay, so... Why would I be clicking onto a portal where I'm basically walking sober into a pub where people yeah. are already quite aggy? But it's interesting because yeah. you're in yoga, you do a lot of balances, don't you? I've noticed when you do your post your need your them. yoga practice, and that's all about stilling your mind and only thinking about one thing. It's just you. You're I have to. Out all the other it's like I literally have to. I, I I have to do something to counterbalance it because my mind is too much of a delicate thing, and it will tip and it will spiral and it will go go go, and I I have to just keep bringing myself back or sometimes just like before I spoke to you today I just sat at my desk here and I didn't look at my phone and I didn't listen to music and I just sat for half an hour in silence because I thought I need space I don't even know why or what that space will bring me but I need a bit of nothingness because we're so bombarded at the moment it's but when bonkers. we were kids we had endless nothingness like this idleness is a big constantly yeah I mean and boredom but in such a good way we used to have yeah. a, a game called crying which is where because there was no TV like you know four channels and like no internet and stuff and we'd have a game where we stared out the window at the uh, wires from the pylons that we could see outside the window and you had to stare at them for as long as possible without blinking until you started naturally crying your eyes started to water <laughs> we that was a so great bored. game for us yeah that was great we loved I loved crying it was oh, so good we were so deprived back then it was br- oh. it was brilliant but idleness is important and I, I'm trying to definitely get back more into it especially due to all this bloody noise that we're dealing with um well, ironically the only way i think a busy woman can uh, have idleness and stillness is to put it on her to-do list like yeah. i realize now because all women have a to-do list and it's endless and it's got 500 million things on it and you just need to i realized the big mistake i was making with my to-do list is that i was not on my to-do list and you need yeah. to put on in the day of clipping the dog's toenails and putting up the curtain rail and sorting out the tax returns and stuff you need to have spend 20 minutes just on your own and like 
Let's talk about yoga for a bit because I know you're really into it and I'm into it too. I know you are, yeah. I'm really evangelical about it now because I was put off it for years because I thought it was very kind of spiritual and po-faced and kind of about perfection and stuff. And it was when I started watching kids, my kids, and children naturally do yoga. They're going upside down, they're stretching, they're sort of, you know, sort of downward dog, all that stuff. Naturally, when kids are mucking about... And I realized that, like, for me, that's what yoga is. It's mucking about again, like you did when you were a kid, because, you know, you get to eight or nine and suddenly it's like, sit still, sit straight, like kind of like, be quiet, you know. Then you get tense and you find out you've been holding your breath from a really angry phone conversation you had in 1997. And just being told to take a deep breath and stretch and and mess about is so liberating, I think, particularly for middle-aged women, because it costs no money. You can do it at home. You can fit it in in 10 minutes, and it's just for you. It's for you. It's for you. It's just, it's exactly that. And I think this is why your book spoke to me on every page because it's it's looking for those moments because it's life is so complicated at this stage you know whether you've got a family or not it's just you've created your own circle of people and your own world and then you get to a point where you've got to manage it and you know the stuff you want to let go of and you know the stuff that you absolutely love and want to keep in place and that is so much to juggle and I think like you say, putting that on your to-do list or carving out some moments where you do something that just makes you feel good. Because I, I said to my husband this week, I was like, God, I mean, I've sort of put a lot of work in this last couple of weeks so that when the kids break up over summer, I can get a bit more time where I'm just at home. So yeah, I'm sort of yeah. doing double the amount now. Yeah, there's no and such I, thing actually as a holiday. There's just doing no. all the work before and after. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And having a pause where I'm just then shouted at by children, which is probably more fun. But... I'm really like caning the work thing at the moment. And I, I got to a point where I sort of said to him, I don't even know what I like anymore because I'd got to the point where I wasn't giving myself any time to find any joy for me. Because I was like, oh no, I need to clear out that sock drawer first and then I have to clean school uniforms and this is a never-ending list of stuff. And and we, we kind of think that it's selfish to give ourselves any time or any joy. But it's if we want to keep all that stuff going, it's it's imperative that we look for that time. Well, it's like they say in the planes, you've got to put your mask on first before yeah. attending to others. And yeah. like, kind of, you know, mums need to make sure they've got their mask on. And the yeah. only way that you will do that is by putting is by putting yourself on your to-do list because it won't naturally spontaneously happen. Like, kind nope. of the way, you won't suddenly wake up one day and go, oh, I've got nothing to do. I don't know. Nope. I know. I'll just go do some gardening and then some lunch. Like, kind of, and go look around RHS Wisley and get an inspiration oh, on her. I like it there. Not going to happen. It's gorgeous, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's lovely. See, see, that's another thing. Like, I really wanted to talk about because so many. I think that there's this presumption that middle-aged women are just boring, and everything they're into is boring. So, like, you know, I'm I'm doing all the cliched, supposedly boring middle-aged things. Like, I'm into gardening. I'm yeah. into yoga. Like, I'm into wild swimming. I love my dog. But each one of those is actually amazing. We don't talk about these things like gardening. You need to be kind of a visionary time traveller because when you're planning a garden, you've got to know that what that border is going to be doing. If you put this bulb here now in the middle of winter, then you'll have these beautiful vertical stalks in March. And then in May, you're going to have these pink flowers and they'll be playing against the purple that you're going to put over there. So you're playing this. You're like the conductor of an orchestra through time and space, like conducting this all in your mind and the flow you get into when you're tending your garden. Although I have started to anthropomorphise my garden a bit. I am... I, I I pruned too hard into a bush last week and took out quite a vital branch, and I found myself saying, "I'm so sorry, dude. I know oh, you've yes. been working on that for ages." Talk to the talk <laughs> to, to the plants, talk to yeah. the trees. <laughs> it's so important. I I am the same, and I am again fulfilling every cliche. But I think I kind of wanted to fulfil all those cliches in my twenties and thirties, but I just felt it wasn't the right time. I had to 
follow what you're meant to do, which is go out and get pissed. And yeah, some of that was really good fun. But I've always had a strong pull to being at home. Like I am an absolute cliche hermit. I love pottering around. Pottering about is the absolute pottering is Mm. the best. And I've always loved pottering. And I think I just sort of have given myself full permission to do it. Whereas I've always sort of loved it, but denied myself of it. And now I'm just relaxing into that. And I fucking love it. Um, There's so many things I want to talk about in regards to parenting, because you, you very generously share a lot of your experiences over the last 10 years of parenting and, and raising two daughters as well. And, you know, you clearly state in this book that we don't live in a sort of feminist utopia. So that there's a lot of work to be done. And I wonder how you've navigated that challenge of telling your daughters what you know about the world and what you've experienced and what you don't want them to have to go through versus letting them find some of the stuff out so the lessons are sort of embedded. Yeah, it's really tough. Like, it, I think it's similar when you've got daughters. I think it's the same when I talk to my uh, friends of colour. There's a day where you have to explain to your kids, particularly your boys, about racism. And that's one of the worst days of parenting ever. And, like, particularly then talking to your young boys about, sort of, you know, what might happen with them legally, with the, you know, if they sort of come into contact with the police. And similarly, when you've got daughters, there's just a horrible day where you just have to start talking to them about sexual assault and rape and catcalling. And, you know, there's that, you know, I'm 46 and I still, when I hear footsteps behind me on the street, there's a Sarah Silverman sketch where she goes, when you hear those steps behind you on the street, every woman thinks, is this it? Is this my rape? Like, kind of, is is today the day it happens? And having to explain that to your daughters is incredibly dispiriting. And you have to sort of, you know, make sure that it's a blend of, you know, sort of advice and sort of ways to deal with anxiety and to keep each other safe. But it's a really sad day because, like, you know, we hope that we're working to a future where in the future mums won't have to tell their daughters this stuff. But at the moment we do. And it's irresponsible not to. And you have to do it far younger than you think as well. Um, You know, sort of like when you start talking to to girls about these sort of issues, you find out that the kind of language that's being used in schools or images that you're being shown or the things that are being discussed, they're starting to happen like eight, nine, ten. Like and you're thinking, oh, I'll wait till they're 13, 14. By that point, they probably will have already seen, you know, 50 dicks sent to them on text messages they will have already seen horrible pornography and i feel you know especially with the sort of the sort of online free to access pornography that both sexes are seeing we sort of talk about you know how bad it is for girls to see this stuff sort of the violence and sort of hair pulling and spitting and stuff but i think it's equally bad for boys as well i can remember once being at a feminist meeting and saying this and someone went no boys love watching men being in control and hurting women and i was like the boys i know are scared watching Pirates of the Caribbean. Yeah, I think exactly. If they're watching like some kind of violent anal rape scene on a landing where someone's being no. bummed by someone who looks like Burt Reynolds, like, <laughs> and and then like and then they're supposed to be the ones that do that to girls. Oh. And you hear terrible stories. As one mother um, said, her sixteen-year-old boy had come home from school in tears, and uh, and eventually he told her that that was the day that he'd lost his virginity with his sixteen-year-old girlfriend. And he'd started to strangle her and she'd started to cry and go, I don't like it. And he went, oh, my God, I thought that was what you were supposed to do. Wow. And how are we screwing up sex? Like, you know, cats do this on roofs, like kind of, you know, every other animal is managing to do this. But somehow this brilliant thing that should be fun and enjoyable and lovely and it's free, like kind of and relaxing. We've suddenly turned to this thing that no one's really enjoying and is scaring a lot of people so I, know. Oh, God. I mean that's... how much of that because you know you say in the book never has there been a, a tougher time to be a young woman which I wholeheartedly agree with and I'm wondering how much of that is just simply down to technology 
Yeah, no, it's a huge problem. I mean, I think it is a mixed build, but grill being a young woman, because obviously sort of like the rise of online pornography is, you know, is huge. Like, you know, something like 98% of kids get their primary, their first sort of sex education from watching that way before it's talked about in school. <clears throat> um, and obviously social media for women is full yeah. of trolls and death yeah. threats and dick pics and stuff. But on the other hand, this is also the first time that women across the world of all ages, wherever they are, have been able to communicate with each other. Previously, you could only sort of, if you got, you know, you had to have a newspaper column and you had to be famous or kind of like tour. Um, but now anyone can talk. And if we see what's happened in feminism, as soon as women have had access to other women and to be able to talk, there's all these terms in the last 10 years like gaslighting and the Bechdel test and Me Too and coercive control that just normal women have come up with. These aren't academians. These aren't like professional feminists. Just a woman somewhere recognised a problem, named it, and then suddenly was able to share it with the world so women could go, oh my God, I thought that was just happening to me and it was because of mistakes I made. But this is happening everywhere. And there are ways that we can stop this and there are ways that we can prevent it. And that's... So when I have to tell my children the bad news about being a woman, the good news is also but you're part of this amazing tribe of 4.5 billion women. And we've invented this thing called feminism, which is this amazing informal network where women are identifying these problems, talking to each other and coming up with solutions. And although... You know, it's a it's a difficult time to be a young woman. I, I, you know, I have no doubt that things will get better. I know that our daughters' lives will be better than ours were. If you think of some of the stuff that you would have heard at sixteen, things you would have thought, things that people were saying to you, yeah, oh, just some of the stuff that I went through as well. Like you know, as I said, that I when I was reading your book, I was getting sort of flashbacks of why did I put up with this shit? What constantly? And I know that my daughter and stepdaughter won't. I know that that will not be the case. And even like I said, between your two books on the theme of feminism, you can see that there's, you know, just there, there is progress in great ways as well as as well as well lots of, you know, shitty things happening. Well, some of the shit that you got in the press and the way that people would talk about you and kind of the language that was used to describe you and stuff. Now, if that happened, even if that stuff was published, because I think people are a lot more wary about saying that really overtly yeah, sexist stuff yeah. now. But even if it was, and we still see things now, you've got millions of girls who would read that go, no, that is sexist bullshit. Yeah. They would blog about it. They would tweet about it. And like... Now, any woman can have hundreds, if not millions of other women come to their defence. Like when we mm. talk about the, you know, the Britney Spears documentary, when Britney was going through those terrible years, it was only men making jokes about it on late night TV shows and writing columns about it. If that was happening to Britney now, it's still awful. But women seeing that would go, no, I can see what's happening here. That's a mental health crisis. The way she's being pursued is horrible. And they would be writing about it as it happened. But it wouldn't take 10 years as it has now for us to finally go, whoa, that was weird. Because women were looking at that at the time and going, that's weird. But they couldn't talk about it anywhere. They couldn't mm. campaign about it. So we, you know, we have, you know, we have in many ways been freed by uh, social media technology because at least we can talk to each other. That is where we change things. Yeah, it's a, it's a beautiful point. And again, you know, thank you for sharing so much about your own challenges with bringing up your daughters because I found it so helpful. And like I said at the start, I found it helpful in terms of looking at my own years as a teenager and you know 20 something but also looking at how I want to raise my girls as well because you know you talk in depth about your daughter's mental health challenges and her eating disorder and again trying to find that balance between wanting to problem solve wanting to be the solution and to execute this demon that she's having to deal with but you can't and I wonder how you coped with that with your own mental health how did you move through that knowing that at times you you couldn't do it you were you were helpless you couldn't do anything yeah it's so tough I mean there's so many things you don't expect about parenthood that you don't sort of imagine when you're getting pregnant or trying for a baby and I, I suspect that one thing women never think about is might I have a child with a profound mental illness or an eating disorder you just don't want to think about that 
Um, but the statistics are, are massively on the rise. And so, yeah, so when my daughter first started, so when you get an eating disorder, it's usually the, you know, the person suffering from the eating disorder at the beginning, it seems like a solution to them. They feel like they're being smart, like kind of this is this is solving their problem because they're usually very anxious and depressed. And what I've learned now is that if you feel that you can't talk fully and honestly about your anxiety and depression and get the kind of response and help that you need and the listening that you need and the non-judgmentalness that you need, then, and my daughter explained this to me afterwards when she was better, she was like, I just thought when I heard about eating disorders, oh, that'll be useful because then people can see that I'm sad all the time. I won't have to keep saying it. And so when we see self-harm, when we see overdoses, when we see eating disorders, that is still a communication, but it's someone going, I can't talk to you anymore. I've just got to show you. And so your job as a parent, if you have a, a child with one of these conditions, is to try and move them back a step and go from like, okay, you don't need to physically show me anymore. I hear you. Let's go back to talking. And the reason she'd had to develop this coping technique and show me how sad she was is that one of my biggest failures I learned was that I was scared of sadness. I had been brought up in a house where just no one cared if you were sad. Like you were just supposed to crack on, like kind of, you know, there's eight kids. It's really busy. Like sort yourself out, uh, you know, put on a smile and get and crack on with it. And so when she first started being sad, I would first of all try to jolly her out of it. Uh, I would try to treat her out of it. Like I bought you a pet rat and let's let's watch TV. I would try and reason her out of it. I'd give her these TED Talks at two in the morning. Like, you know, you've got to eat. You know, your brain is growing. It will make you depressed. I get angry. Like kind of just do it. Like it's your choice. Just eat the food. I get sad. Like kind of I cry and be like, surely if you can see that I'm sad, then because you love me, you will want to get better. And none of that works. And it took me three years to realise that what I needed to do was to be able to look her in the eye and be able to say truthfully, I can see what's happening. I can see you are sad. You've got to name it with teenagers. You've got to say what you see. I see you are sad. I'm not scared of your sadness. It will pass. And I will be with you all the way through this. We are together in this. And one of the reasons I wanted to write about this in the book is, first of all, I'm happy to say she's fully recovered now and had told me to write about this. And she said, you need to write about it because for my generation, teenagers, there is no stigma around mental health. You know, we talk about it all the time, but your generation are our parents. You're supposed to be helping us and you are screwed up about it. You don't know what to do about it. You panic. You do the wrong things. You get angry. You get sad. Um, you need to tell people what you've learned now. And so that's that's what I've done in the book. I couldn't find the advice that I put in this book. I could not find anywhere. Uh, and I also couldn't find any hopeful stories. We'd know what the stats are on you know, severe eating disorders. It's yeah. sort of only one in three will fully recover. But I wanted to tell a hopeful story because, my God, when you're going through it, you need a hopeful story. Yes. You need to at least believe you might be one of the ones that is fully cured. Oh, absolutely. We have to have hopeful stories. There's not enough of them. And... And I gained so much from it because I think I was, you know, I, I had bulimia for 10 years in my 20s, which was, I'm sure, a reaction to the weird job that I had at a very young age and the criticism and all of that stuff that I was not coping with whatsoever, but had zero outlet to even dissect it or even think about it or process it. But it allowed me to sort of realise that because I've never, I, I kind of had an inkling, but to really, to lay it out as you did and for your daughter to be as astute as she is as well, to, to sort of see the angle that she's coming from and, and to look at the bigger picture, it really helped with making a bit of peace there as well. So, you know, thank you. It's, it's a really powerful bit of writing and it's... Um it's amazing. It's and I'm so glad that your daughter's doing well. It's brilliant. Yeah, no, I'm so glad. She's she's an incredible kid, and uh, you know she went through it with a fine tooth comb, so it's only what she's happy with. But she was she was right. Like, kind of, it is our generation that don't know how to deal with it. 
and you saying that you know you still haven't fully come to terms with it and understood it our generation just didn't talk about it no. like, there was such a shame around it like you just would not mention it or if you did people would just think you were a silly bitch and you should sort it out totally like, kind of, just you know kind of like totally. it's, it's attention seeking you're being pathetic yeah. or you're doing it because you're vain yeah and you you are so full of self-loathing and you so feel like you're trying to do the right thing and the good thing by doing this like kind of like this you know this is this will cure my problems um that to hear those kind of opinions no wonder our generation never talked about it no wonder you never processed it like yeah. kind of where was the place and the space and the words to talk about it there was no space to and, and, and you know you touch on this in the book there's no space for women to fail still we still have a huge problem with this there is no space for women to fail and again you know this is very much my past experience it, I, I was berated for things that I barely even you know didn't even do or you know blame for things or whatever all sorts of crazy stuff and and there's just no space for people to make mistakes anymore, which seems so peculiar because, well, first of all, how the hell are we meant to grow and learn and change? But also there's no single human that's walking through life without making mistakes. It's it's part of being a human. But on a, on a sort of not even just a public level, but on a general level where we're conversing with each other and discussing life, we're just leaving no space for women to fail. And that is so toxic. Yeah. And also, you know, let, let's look at the word fail, like kind of like that. What we could use there is learn, like kind of yeah. like you, you can only learn from screwing something up and doing something wrong. That's the quickest way that you find a new way to do something that's better. So rather than saying fail, I, I really do prefer to say learn. And when you talk, when you say learn instead of fail, when you're saying there's no way that women can learn because you try and if you screw it up once, then that's it. You never get to learn anymore. You're taken away. You get that job removed. The stats are really big on this. Again, women and people of colour and people from the LGBT community, if they're given a promotion, a high profile promotion in a, in a company or, you know, in media or whatever, if they are seen to fail, they are five times more likely to be immediately fired than a straight white guy would. So like kind of, you're just never allowed. Like So so then the pressure is, you know, these outlying women, these pioneers and people of colour that we see sort of taking these high profile jobs, you know there's a real sense of like, okay, well, we've given someone not normal a go. Like, so come on then, like kind of all right. Like, you know that you're already walking into hostility when you do it, which of course makes you more nervous and more likely to fail. Mm. So um, yeah, it's, it, it's a very noticeable thing, like kind of, and the other thing is as well, that again, sort of going back to some of the treatment that you got in the press and sort of all high profile women, even yeah. still now with all this feminism, yeah. we think, oh, well, you know, they should be able to take criticism or like, you know, we treat women equally to men. We should be able to criticize them. But I realized recently how toxic this is. I was writing a column and I wanted to mention a famous woman as a shorthand for someone we all love, like kind of, who's never been canceled. Who's kind of just been loved and we love them like Michael Palin or Sir David Attenborough. And it had to be a young woman for the purposes of the piece. So I couldn't say Judy Dench. And I couldn't think of anyone because every single high profile woman in the world at, on repeated occasions has been yeah. destroyed, often for just having fat upper arms or saying the wrong word. Yeah. And it's not just that we're sort of, you know, sportingly picking off famous, rich, privileged people. What are the children who are watching this thinking? Yes. If, if even Michelle Obama, who, who works for charity and is elegant and funny and brilliant and generous and honest, has been, you know, been said that she's like the beard of her gay husband has been destroyed for being a bad mother, all these things. Then what girl watching that wants to now become an adult woman and try? Like kind of you're just like we don't make being a grown woman seem like an appealing job. 
No. And that's one of the reasons I think why mental illness and eating disorders are so hugely on the rise because girls are just going, I want to delay being a teenager. I want to delay growing up. I want to stay little because you're trying to go across that battlefield from child to adult. Yeah. And who are the female role models who've taken a completely bomb-free, gun-free, bullet-free path across that piece of no man's None. land? There aren't any. No one. You know you're going to go through absolute shit whatever you do. However loved you are at the beginning, you're going to be Taylor Swift with your massive backlash. You're going to be Billie Eilish being cancelled. Like, kind of like, it will happen to you. It's terrifying. It's what is. I mean, I I still don't cope with it, and I'm going to be forty this year. That's why I don't do TV anymore. I, I can't go into that space. I cannot put myself in that space, knowing that there one hundred percent will be an attack. I, I'm happy in my own little world over here where no one pays any attention to me anymore, and it's fucking brilliant. I just do the job that I love. I get on with it. I I always work from the heart. That's me, and the rest of it, I I cannot deal with it, and I, and it, I mean, and that's someone I've been in the industry for years and years and years, and I still can't. So to think of how little girls are viewing that, my mind explodes yeah. at the thought. So so the statistics of the kind of women who will put themselves up for those kind of high profile jobs and go on TV and do those jobs where you know you're going to be hugely criticised, it's such a tiny outlying percentage of extreme extrovert confident girls that are going to ever want to do that. So so we're not seeing any introverts. You know, we're, we're dominated by extroverts. We don't see any thoughtful introverts. We need that balance. But like so many people will go, I could be brilliant at this job, but I can't take the shit that will go with it. And we lose them. And this is this is always when I'm sort of talking about diversity, whether it be gender or racial or sexual or whatever. I think people think that sort of diversity and having equality, equal representation in everything, music, arts, TV, everything, would be like a luxury that we can tack on at the end. Like kind of, oh, we'll let them through the door and they can have a go. Like, you know, that's a treat for them. It'll make us look like good guys. And it's not a luxury diversity it's a necessity because the greatest resource that we have in the world isn't oil or gold it's brains it's people's brains and their hearts and their souls and what they have to give to us and if we're siphoning off 99% of the people because they're the wrong gender or the wrong sex or the wrong colour or they can't handle the pressure that will come with it, we are losing every day amazing albums, brilliant TV shows, incredible documentaries, incredible books, like kind of amazing performers. Like they're just not, we're just, you know, we're, it's another generation that we're going to waste and then another and another until we finally realise that we're going to be so bored and so lonely if we're only having like the one percent of extreme extroverts who think they can they can blast through and then survive yeah. in the world in the way that it is in the moment. Yeah, who can survive and I hate in that. it? I do, I do. It's it's a massive shame, and you know the obvious solution is just that there's more kindness out there, but that seems almost impossible at the moment. But again, you know we have to we have to be hopeful. We have to hope that there's going to be a revolution of sorts where you know kindness prevails because we feel it feels like the direct opposite of that at the moment. But well, I, I think that's one of the reasons that podcasts have been so like disproportionately yeah. successful because the kind of people who don't want to go on TV or do those big productions, this is little stuff that you can do from the heart, from a bunker, um, like kind of, and that's and the people love these the intimacy of it. And you're hearing conversations and the kind of people that you wouldn't hear or see anywhere else because mm. anyone can make a podcast. Let's face it, like, yeah, kind exactly. Of, I, I love that. I, I, I am sort of actively retreating at the moment and very happily. You know, I'm, I'm happily hiding away and doing my little bits and bobs because I, life's too short to feel all those feelings and to put yourself out there in that way. And, and I'm, I'm really I'm really content doing this. And I think obviously it's down to experience, but also age. And, you know, you talk about this in the book. You, you, you sort of start to round off the book by saying getting to this age is there's a huge element of undoing. And, and I, f- I found that really fascinating. And, and I think that's exactly what I'm, I'm the stage I'm at. I'm, I'm undoing and unlearning and, 
shedding and just simplifying and making my life sort of smaller. Um, what what were the, the main things that you felt you had to undo as you reached this age? I think it's such a thing that you do in middle age. If you think about it, sort of your teens and 20s, you're getting stuff, aren't you? Like kind of buying stuff, like kind of like, oh, it's some ironic stuff on a market. I just want stuff. <laughs> you get stuff. And then you get to our age and I'm now just obsessed with throwing things away like kind of like if, if a child has left something on the kitchen table for a day it's in the bin yeah. like kind of it's off to the charity shop we want to get rid of things because I think you realize that like everything you've got you sort of it's in your mental inventory and it's a responsibility to it and you've got to mend it or look after it or feed it or worm it or whatever and like or have sex with it and kind of like <laughs> I need to I need to simplify all this stuff so I'm really enjoying realising that, like, although, you know, as I discuss in the book, I think middle age is the point where you, there's the most pressure on women's time and energy because you are caring for everyone. You're juggling your work and your children, your friendship groups. You do all this stuff. It pays off really well for women at the end because men at this stage do still to hand to have their, just their careers dominate and everything else becomes secondary. But when men retire, when you talk to charities, um, sort of um, older age charities or charities around loneliness, there's a massive problem with men. Once they retire because they haven't done all this multitask juggling that we're doing now, suddenly with their big thing gone, their job, they don't know what to do. And if they've got divorced or their partner has died, they they don't know how to go back in the world. They can't rebuild their lives. Kind of It kind of ends for them when their job ends and their, their identity dissolves. Whereas, although it's so hard for us to juggle friends and family and all these things now, when women retire, they start hill walking or they, they form a charity or they start learning pottery or they do Zumba or they start travelling the world. And they, they have a third act in their lives in a way that men don't they either go back and repeat the second one they marry for a second time and have new kids or they go back and have the classic midlife crisis and repeat the first one their teenagers they get their tattoo they get on the bike um so so women win in the end and the thing i'm really concentrating on now is is trying to get more excitement for women of my age about our older years and reclaiming words like witch and crone oh, and hag. which is my favorite word Yes, oh. because it's supposed to be a pejorative, right? But when you read about the lives of women who were called witches... They're the greatest. They're, they are such badasses. They go and live in the woods. Yep. They know how to brew alcohols and potions yep. and tinctures. So they, they know the medicines. They can get themselves drunk. They surround themselves with animals, cats and dogs and particularly They're doing spells. Crows. They're doing spells. Right? Yeah, they understand psychology. Yes. Like, kind of, you know, that, the whole thing about palm reading and stuff. Like, that's basically women who now would be psychologists or therapists being able to talk to someone about their emotions using the hand as basis. They they hang out with the rest of their coven and cackle into the middle of the night. Yep. That's everything I'm doing with my friends yep. and my life. Like, kind of, I'm swimming in cold water. I'm brewing my potions. I'm hanging out with my animals. I'm with my friends. And I feel... The fear is dissipating now. And I, I, like you, I hate doing TV. I get offered a lot of it. I just don't want to do it. But I think by the time I get to 60, along with my skin elasticity, I will have lost the last fuck I give. Yeah. And I can, I want to go on something like Have I Got News For You and just scare all the young copy comedians. <laughs> I want to come on with like long grey hair, like the wild woman of London. Yes. Maybe with like a staff a and staff. a crow. Yes, lots of and, rings, huge rings. Yeah, and just terrify yeah. them. And every time they try and make an edgy joke about a lady not being sexy, I'll just like literally point to my staff at them and go, you are cursed. Yes. My curse is now inside <laughs> your mind. You are now cursed. Oh, and just I'm, witch the whole thing up. <laughs> I'm so for this. I, I'm I'm steadily in my witchy years, probably prematurely. I, I'm all about the witch, and I think we need to fully reclaim that word. I absolutely love it, and I'm 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 with you on that. We can flaff on our broomsticks together. I'm I'm happily a witch. Um, God, Catelyn, thank you. I just I can't thank you enough for like writing these books that have just changed so many women's and young girls' lives, and continue to and talking about a really important stage of a woman's life, which is completely ignored on a societal level. 
I loved every word of your book. There, 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 were, there were two bits that I keep thinking about and they make me snort with laughter. And, and one, of them is, <laughs> one of them is the... <laughs> I think I know what you're going to say. Go on. Wait, there's two. One of them is the, the Jersey cow in the pair of whistles jeans. Moo. Yes. That is what you need to be when you're around teenagers oh. who are kind of wigging out and bugging out and stuff. There's no point in being clever or funny. You just be need to be a sympathetic, cow. yeah, a sympathetic dairy cow called Daisy just mooing supportively at your teenager. Because they're not really listening to you. You just need to go, moo, you're lovely. That's it. Clock off. I was in bed <laughs> weeping. And also the, the line that resonated the most out of the whole book is when you talk about having a pivotal poo. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's a day changer, right? <laughs> I... When you have those... Yeah. Oh, I had one this morning. Changes the day. It's just, it, it, honestly, it sparks your day in the right way. It is, it's bliss, pure bliss. I like, you see, that's where Marie Kondo is missing a thing when she talks about things that spark joy. She never talks about a pivotal poo, <laughs> does she? She's, she's missing that one. I have to say, I thought you were going to, because the biggest response that I get from things where women are just going, yeah, this spoke to me, <sighs> was that men's coughs and sneezes. Like kind of that seems to have hit a massive nerve, just like so the easily observable thing that when women sneeze, they just go. Oh, Jessie's are we we talk about this all the time in the house. I, I don't understand why 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 so loud. I don't, I mean I but I'm more angry than finding that humorous because it pisses me off so oh, much. Furious, <laughs> they're an act of aggression. Furious. Like the, the whole street doesn't need to know. It's a massive performance. No. It's only when men are going to be sick. Like they start talking about it two days before. They're like, <laughs> oh, something's up. Like, kind of like they sort of tell you they're going to go and be sick, like kind of like they're going off to the electric chair. And you're like, I've been sick during dinner parties into a pint glass under the table and not stop talking. I've been sick on a dance floor and not missed a beat. Women can do a very quick, discreet lady bomb like that, like kind of, which is not, which is get on with it. I was sick every day for my whole pregnancy, every day. Right. Nine months. Oh. I invented I invented the luxury vom. That's where like you make it nice, like you kind of like you fold a like nice towel for your knees, I've got oh. another one on the seat so you can rest your head, and then I'll just prop up a couple of your grazia. Love. Just go through the kind of recommendations for like your sort of spa beach vom. Yeah, I exactly. Yeah. L- literally. And sometimes that's the best <laughs> bit of the day. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, Catelyn, you are the best. I absolutely adore you. Thank you so much. It's an honour to have you on the podcast oh, and God, just keep right doing what you, you do. I love what you're doing, mate. You're a fucking survivor. You are a future witch and I bloody adore you. Thank you so much. This has been a joy. Look, I invite you all to be part of me and Catelyn's new gang of witches. Let's do it. Get your broomsticks out, babes. Um, Catelyn, thank you for making me laugh. I so, so needed that. You absolutely have to read her book, More Than A Woman, if you haven't already. Hilarious, brilliant, poignant, beautiful, thoughtful. It's out in paperback right now. Let us know what your favourite quotes of that podcast are over on Instagram. (laughs) Why not? At Happy Place Official. That's going to be fun. And listen, do make sure you've hit that follow button on the podcast feed because you'll want to be back here next week for a happy place first. I'll be chatting to not one, not two, but three wonderful, gorgeous people. Thank you again to Catelyn, to the producer Anushka Tate at Rethink Audio, and to you lot for listening. I bloody love you. I'll see you soon.
Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.